0: Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: We've got some damn good NBA playoff basketball, certainly yesterday, more again today here to give us his thoughts on all of the opening rounds of the NBA playoffs the guy who comes at day in and day off CBS com and ops on frequently with us. Our buddy James Herbert joins us here on CBS Sports Radio. How are you, James?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me again.
2: My pleasure. Uh, last time you were on, I admitted that uh, I was misinformed. I always thought you were a West Coast guy. And you go, no, Jody, I live in Brooklyn. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> um, and I apologize then, but I'm now glad that that is uh, well known. And, the fact, did you make it over to Barclay Center yesterday? Yes, um, I, I was at that game at Barclays I'm not currently
1: at MSG, um, but I've been watching that game and it looks like that's an even crazier atmosphere but I mean it was very different um, to be back in a packed arena again it, just the energy um, even before the game started like this was just when the starters came out even like when the players came out for warm-ups like Bruce Brown came running out of the locker room applauding the fans there and screaming uh, there, there was just a lot of I think, pent-up energy. Uh, Over the last year or so, like, you know, they they had fans, you know, like 1,200 or so for some of these regular season games in the second half of the year. But this was just an entirely different feel. And and it's funny, like James Harden said after the game that he attributed some of his own slow start and the net slow start to him being sort of thrown off um, by all the kind of, you know, the jitters and the emotion, the energy in the building, which it's hilarious to hear a player as good as him say something like that. But, like, I, I can tell you, like, I'm pretty sure all the players felt it. It was impossible not to feel it.
2: What was the announced attendance uh, for the game? And the thing that I've gotten from player quotes and from guys i talked to have been arenas say, yeah, but – it sounds like they couldn't sardine another person into the building. I've been in sold out buildings, eighteen, nineteen thousand, 19,000, and it was as loud as I can ever remember. Is it because just we've been out of the mix and we've missed it? That The pure numbers of it don't necessarily add up, but a lot of people are saying that's as loud of a crowd as I've ever played in front of.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a really loud crowd. It was. It was a little bit. Beneath 15,000 at Barclays, at least that, that's what was announced. I think uh, at MSG they were going to sell about 15,000, maybe exactly that number, um, but it, it both were announced as sellouts. I, I think the difference is there There were most of the sections in the arena were for vaccinated fans only, um, but then there were a few sections scattered. There was one in the lower ball. I think there were a few in the upper ball that was for unvaccinated people and so those seats for obvious reasons could not be completely uh full up but i mean most of the arena was full and uh, i think just you take the the normal jump from regular season to game one of the postseason energy and then you multiply that by whatever number it is that represents all the energy that has just been pent up over the last little while and just how excited people were to be inside in a group supporting their team again
2: Now, uh, for a guy like you who went over as a member of the media to watch the game, did you have to show proof of vaccination? Yes. Um, I I mean, I could have still covered it without that,
1: but I am fully vaccinated, so that was fine. That's why I was in the vaccinated media section. But there was a section for unvaccinated media people, too. It's just it worked the same way it did in the regular season. If you're not vaccinated, then you needed to go and get a negative test before you came in. The, the, The Nets actually... Um, not only do they have a testing station set up, they now have a vaccination station set up that they're running that is across the street from the arena and where the old Models used to be. So they're taking this quite seriously. And I mean, their CEO said the other day on a call with the media, they're not neutral on this issue. They are um, directly nudging fans to go and get vaccinated if they're not Already, the tickets are cheaper in the vaccinated areas than they are in the unvaccinated uh, sections of the arena. Um, I think, you know, partially that's just logistics, right? They can sell fewer of them than others. Is like I think they're like sure. genuinely
2: trying to make a point. And good for the Nets. I am 100% uh, percent behind them in their efforts. Um, the Nets won, and they won going away in the fourth quarter. Uh, they trailed at half. The Celtics actually did a pretty good job shooting threes in the first half, but then uh, cooled off a little bit, and the better team pulled away and won. That's going to happen three more times, isn't it?
1: <laughs> I, I would be pretty shocked if it did not um It's interesting. Like, I thought the Celtics played um, defensively a really smart game. I think just their game plan coming in was really good. But, I mean, it was going to be an uphill battle kind of regardless going into this series, Um, even if they were at full strength. I just think without Jalen Brown, like, we're it's just not the same. Like, we're sort of getting robbed of what could have been a much more interesting series if the Celtics were at full strength. You could at least look at them defensively and say, all right, well, between Tatum, Brown and Marcus Smart—they have three like elite-level defenders that they can put on the Nets' big three. Kind of stylistically, you you know, um, kind of how they're going to approach things. Both of these teams, you know, they, as talented as they are, as potent as they are, they have stretches where they're you know settling for jumpers. They're not necessarily putting as much rim pressure um, a, a, as you would want. And there were stretches for both of those teams yesterday um, where that happened. The difference is the Nets just have so much more firepower. Um, That when they go cold for a few minutes, you're just sort of sitting there like, all right, well, this is going to stop soon. And obviously it did. Um, And I I think the more impressive part um, from Brooklyn's perspective is just how well uh, that team managed to play on defense. That's been the question since day one of training camps, honestly, since even before that, um, before James Harden arrived before that the rumors even started. Like you kind of looked at this, this roster um, even when it was constructed pretty differently last off season. And that, that was the question and those questions got even louder after the hardened trade when they surrendered some rim protection with Jared Allen. Um, but I thought their defense was excellent yesterday. I think Boston helped them out a little bit. They, they could have been a little sharper, a little crisper. Um, but I thought the Nets did a marvelous job against Jason Tatum and not only Tatum, like I just thought they, disrupted boston's uh, offensive flow collectively too like the, their switching was on point their communication was really good um and I, I think that is what is going to make the difference uh between if the nets are just a really good team or if they are a championship team we know they're going to score like this is maybe the best collection of offensive talent that we've ever seen in the nba uh, it's all about whether or not they can get stopped the celtics are not um, the most dangerous opponent that they're going to face. But I think they are a good tune-up, at least, because they have a couple of pretty you know, potent lead playmakers here in Kemba Walker and Jason Tatum. And neither of those two guys look comfortable whatsoever uh, in Game 1.
2: James Herbert, our guest uh, from CBSSports.com, talking NBA with us. All right, before you took off for Brooklyn, did you catch enough of the Bucks heat uh, showdown uh, that went Milwaukee's way in overtime? Uh, and watching it, I thought Miami had every chance to win it. They got the better of the play. For the majority of the time, fell behind in the fourth quarter. Butler had to make a big bucket to get it to overtime, and then, um, yes, uh, Middleton made the big shot. Not Giannis. I thought Giannis had a mediocre game for Mr. MVP. As a matter of fact, not uh, was it more in your eyes a Bucks. Dodged a bullet by not winning. Miami missed a big opportunity because they had a chance to win the game. What was your read after the contest was over and Milwaukee was up one nothing with an overtime win in their pocket? I
1: thought honestly it was a pretty big statement from Milwaukee's defense. The Heat got almost nothing at the rim in that game early on. You see like Duncan Robinson making all these threes, and you're kind of sitting there like, oh goodness, is Milwaukee just going to make the same mistake that it did? throughout their series against the Heat last year, where they're just dropping guys into the paint. They're giving up all of these open threes. Um, there were some more open threes uh, throughout the game after that, but that didn't end up being the difference. And they cleaned some of that up throughout the game. I thought, you know, the, the Bucks were still trying to keep Brooke Lopez in the paint as much as possible, but with the other four guys, they were switching a lot. They are communicating well. Um, Drew Holiday, I, I just think I mean, he's been, the the biggest difference between this year's team and last year's team um, throughout this entire season. Um, And I thought he really shined on both ends in game one. He had the big sort of steal and layup at the other end. um, Or I guess it was a rebound and layup and the stop and layup at the end of the game. But I just thought throughout, like, his ball pressure was really good. Milwaukee just, their defense as a team was really good. It wasn't a beautiful game. Like, both teams were kind of stuck in the mud for a while. I thought, like, Miami played really good defense as well but I mean the Bucks ended up pulling it out it wasn't Giannis's best game he was clearly playing through pain um, but I actually like the way they used him for a lot of that I mean using him as more of a big man as more of a roller the guy that would set the screen rather than the guy that's always initiating from the perimeter like this is something they've been working on over the course of the season partially because of this exact matchup like they are doing uh, quite a few things that are different from what they were doing in last year's playoffs and I think You know, it it was close. They just kind of got away with it. It was absolutely not perfect. But I think they have to, by and large, feel good about being able to escape with that win and being able to see some of those things that they've been practicing over the course of the year actually end up paying off.
2: Staying in the East. The early game today was the Sixers um, opening at home. They, too, had a pretty big crowd. And they are a, a very good home court team, best home court record in the Eastern Conference this year. Uh, Joel Embiid gets in foul trouble early and sat the majority of the second period. So we had a game at halftime. Uh, Tobias Harris basically kept the Sixers in it with an unbelievable second quarter. Uh, They were able to pull away and win uh, easily late, kind of like the Nets did. Uh, The final score didn't indicate really the way the game went. Um, Do you think the Sixers are going to have any issues getting through the first round? No.
1: Um, I mean, if Embiid keeps on picking up these early fouls, then sure. Because if you just look at the plus-minus numbers. I'm not usually one to talk about single game plus-minus, but th- in this instance, like, that told a story. They, they destroyed them um, when Embiid was on the court. Washington did not appear to have any answers. But, you know, when he came out and when the Sixers had to play some of those bench units, like, it, it got pretty rough. And I thought Washington um, was targeting Dwight Howard defensively. Um, I I thought, you know, the the Sixers spacing was affected, obviously, on the other end. Whenever they're playing Simmons with Bible and Howard or two of those threes, like two of those three, it just gets kind of cramped in there. Um, But, you know, when when Embiid was back on the court and being himself, like it was not close. I think the Sixers have a massive talent advantage in this series. I don't think Washington um, has the horses. I don't even mean on the offensive side. I, I just don't think they have the guys to guard the Sixers. I mean, they're having to make these, like, compromises where they're throwing out Howell Neto on Ben Simmons and hoping that Simmons does not decide to be aggressive, and when he goes down to the post, when he drives to the basket, they have to send help every single time. At that point, they're scrambling, and the Sixers usually end up with an open three or maybe even a layup. Um, so it, it's just it's hard to see the Wizards kind of making this that interesting. Bradley Beal was incredible. He was also dealing with just you know, as he has all season, just such crazy defensive coverage. I mean, he was dealing with either Ben Simmons or Thibel hounding him the entire game. Those guys were getting help, too, when he was driving to the basket. The fact that he put up the numbers he did, I mean, that, that speaks to just how talented he is. He's been doing that sort of thing all year long. But just over the course of this seven-game series, like, I, I think that's just too hard against this Sixers defense. If, if the Wizards were ever going to steal a game, I feel like it would have been this one just because, you know, Embiid got in the foul trouble. And then before he had to sit out, um, and even after he came back in um, a little bit, I didn't think he was himself quite defensively. I think he was playing a little bit more cautiously. I think he was trying not to pick up the foul. When he picked up his third, I'm not even sure if that was a legit foul, but he was having to go sit down again. And I, I I think that was the best shot that Washington will probably have.
2: And uh, as a matter of fact, the final Eastern Conference game, I'm sure you've got it on in the background, as do I. Knicks and Hawks tied at 103. With under a minute to play, Knicks have the ball. Uh, so the uh, And this was, your, of course, your 4-5 matchup. So this is supposed to be the most competitive, and it is just at a three-point margin. Uh, now, uh, yeah, a three-point margin. With 30 seconds ago, Knicks missed the jump shot. So the Hawks actually have a chance to take the lead. Um, since I got you on the phone here, before I let you watch, I'm going to root for overtime, by the way, so you can watch the end of this, James. But I do want to get your thought on the two L.A. teams out west both got beat. Uh, they were the two favorites coming into the season, and everyone talked about the showdown that everyone was waiting on. The Western Conference Finals, nobody leaves the Staples Center. Clippers against the Lakers. Oops. Lakers get handled by the Suns today. The Clippers were, uh, I thought, handled pretty easily last yesterday by the Mavs, and kudos to them as a team and, uh, well, coached squad because uh, – Dante, uh, Lucas, Lucas, Luca was unbelievable for the first three periods. They took him out of the game in the fourth quarter. All the other Mav guys stepped up. Who should be more worried of the two L.A. teams that got picked off in game one in their series, Lakers or Clippers? I think they should
1: both be worried because I think both of those teams are legit, and they were very good over the course of the regular season. Dallas' record was hampered a little bit by a slow start that didn't really reflect the talent on the roster, and Phoenix was just, super solid the the entire year. If I have to pick one, uh, I think I would say the Lakers just because the the Clippers halfway through that fourth quarter, they had a lead in that game. Then their offense kind of died. And like, we've seen that story before. I I think that is something that they can hone in on film sessions and talk about why they were settling for pull-ups and how this is what happens when you do that, Uh, that, that could be a learning moment, a teachable moment for the Clippers. I I think Uh, on the Lakers side, it's a little bit different. I think there are definitely some things that they can change. And uh, I think the rotation is where you have to start. I think they need to play a D at the five as much as possible. And if they are going to play two bigs, I think they should consider making Mark Gasol the other big that is next to Anthony Davis, rather than Andre Drummond or Montrez Harrell. Um, But, you know, there's that. We don't know if they're going to make those moves. I think there's a lot of politics to kind of, get into that there's some tricky kind of internal dynamics there and then beyond that i mean they're dealing with other sort of limiting factors too i mean their half-court offense just wasn't that great throughout this season they they have had a lot of spacing issues uh they, these guys do not have a ton of chemistry just because of how weird their regular season has been with their stars in and out of the lineup and then it's not as if we are talking about a full strength 100 percent lebron either and that that is an issue so Usually you would just assume that LeBron is going to take over and to kind of solve all of the problems by sheer force of will. Maybe he ends up doing that. I'm certainly not going to write him off. But, I mean, that that is an issue that I don't think is comparable to anything the Clippers are facing right now.
2: And uh, the last uh, series that we've got uh, getting underway tonight is going to be the Jazz uh, against the Grizz. More power to the Grizz. Picking off the Warriors and making it into the playoffs and grabbing that eight seed. And John Morant made some miraculous shots toward the end of that game. Uh, so kudos to him. But I checked com, ESPN, Fox. No one is picking either the Jazz or the Sixers. The two one seeds in both conferences to make it to an NBA final or to win an NBA championship they were my two picks, I believe, in the regular season. Maybe I put more of an emphasis on it than anybody else. Uh, am I correct in assuming you didn't have the Jazz going to the NBA final? I didn't,
1: but I think this is wide open, though. It's like I, if I had a choice, I might not have, like,
2: decided to make a prediction Oh, i had to i had to pick somebody and i
1: didn't i didn't think you them. have to that's um, our job
2: they make the us thing. do I, these things james
1: they, they make me do it um yes but if that was not a statement of like i don't believe in the jazz or like i think their regular season is fraudulent or anything like that i i think people who have that idea are going to be in for a rude awakening soon when you see just um kind of how dangerous this jazz team is it's not just Um, the the sort of defense first uh, kind of, you know, they funnel everything to go bare and they shut teams down that way. Like, yes, of course they they, they do that. They're one of the best defensive teams in the NBA, but their offense just got so much better this season. It's always had this sort of um, beautiful quality to it the past few years under Quinn Snyder um, when they were able to find their rhythm. But I, I think what has changed is that, they are placing a much bigger emphasis on getting out in transition, taking quick threes uh, before the defense is set. And that has completely changed uh, their, their offensive ceiling. And then on the other side, they have very consciously tried to work on their other issue that has come back to bite them in the playoffs in recent years, which is that they could get stagnant. They could get overly reliant on Donovan Mitchell and they could, um, they had a particular tendency to do that against switching. So I think they have solutions for that stuff. Now Um, they have, Quite a bit of playmaking on on that team. They have pristine spacing pretty much all of the time. They know exactly how to leverage what Gobert does on offense too. I mean, he's going to win Defensive Player of the Year. I'm pretty sure of that. But offensively, uh, he was unbelievable for them this season. And he never gets the credit because he's not doing it with turnaround jumpers. He's not doing it one on one. But he just puts so much pressure
2: on the rim. He
1: gets offensive boards. He catches lobs. He screens so well. He's so smart. And everything they do on both ends is really built around him. And he's had a fantastic season. And I don't anticipate it's going to be this scenario that people talk about all the time with Gobert getting played off of the court. Maybe if they ended up against Steph Curry, that would have ended up being the issue. But that's certainly not going to happen against the Grizzlies. And I'd be surprised if that happened in a major way even later on in the playoffs.
2: I've heard this expression before, and I think there's something to it, but as always can be overstated. Live by the three, die by the three. And Utah shoots a lot of threes. And they're going to shoot a lot of threes in this playoff run. If I had uh, Jordan Clarkson and Bogdan Bajanovich and Joe Ingles, I'd shoot a lot of threes too. And people always lean on the die part of that line. Live by the three, die by the three. That They're going to die. Well, no, I think they're going to live by the three. They by the live by the three all year, and I think they will do so here in the postseason as well. All right, I am going to let you run, James, because, well, why don't you and I just uh, together watch this last time? There's probably going to be another timeout here anyway. Uh, Tie game, 105-105. Hawks got the ball inbounds. Trey Young attempting to go one-on-one. He does go down the lane, shoots a floater, and makes it with .9 seconds to go. So the Knicks are going to get a timeout. They're going to get one last shot with .9 seconds to go. James, enjoy. We enjoyed having you here on the show. Thanks, bud.
1: Thank you. I'm going to go back and watch because I have it paused from when we started the conversation. <laughs> it led up to that. But thank you.
2: I'm sorry <laughs> I played spoiler for you. I hope you enjoy it just the same. That's our no buddy worries. James Herbert for CBSSports.com, NBA Inside.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it.